Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, and we have got spectacular things to talk about today. You have heard, no doubt, about the Alabama Supreme Court um, that ruled that embryos who were a product of in vitro fertilization are to be protected as children. And this leads, of course, to the, I, you know, to the doctrine that preborn children are protected by the law. It's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing decision. Now, <laughs> it has gotten so much flack, though, because of some of the language that's been used. I mean, Alabama Supreme Court went at this eight to one. All right, eight to one. Uh, and the people of Alabama, I think it was just a few years ago, actually passed a constitutional amendment protecting unborn life. But in this decision, the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court argued in this way, God made every person in his image. Each person, therefore, has a value that it far exceeds the ability of human beings to calculate and human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself. Uh, end of quote. Is that kind of language going to stand? We're going to talk with Carter Sneed uh, at Notre Dame, who joins us on these bioethical questions often. Carter is the author of an ex- really an ex- extraordinary book, it's called What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He's joining me today. We're also going to take a look at another question in bioethics, and that has to do with gender confusion. Attorney John Bursch, who's the author of Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology, will be joining me. He's argued 12 U.S. Supreme Court cases, and so he's quite competent to make the case for how the church ought to respond to gender confusion. We'll also... Uh, get a look at the aftermath of the death of Alexander Navalny. Will his death galvanize support for Russia's democratic opposition? Steve Nix joining us. And then in the second hour, Jonathan Feldstein, founder and president of Genesis 123, will talk to us about what it was like just outside Gaza during the massacre that occurred last fall. First, though, we go to the news with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, February 28th. It's the Feast of St. Auguste Chapdelian. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at AveMaria.edu. Hunter Biden is telling House Republicans his father was never involved in any of his business ventures. President Biden's son is testifying behind closed doors today in the Republican-led impeachment inquiry into the president. Hunter accused Republicans in his opening statement of pushing innuendo and ignoring evidence in their investigation. 
Senate Republicans will have a new party leader for the first time in nearly two decades. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell announced today on the Senate floor he's stepping down in November after serving nine two-year terms since 2006. The Kentucky senator said he'll serve out the remainder of his Senate term, which ends in January 2027. Pope Francis went to the hospital for diagnostic tests today. He had been battling flu-like symptoms since the weekend. He attended his Wednesday audience today, and he had his aide read his speech for him, telling the crowd he still felt a bit of a cold. Despite feeling unwell, the Pope greeted the crowd at the end of the audience, shaking hands with visiting pilgrims, blessing newlywed couples, and speaking with bishops before visiting the hospital. Tonight's Powerball jackpot is up to $412 million. That comes with a cash value of over $195 million. This comes after nobody won last night's Mega Million jackpot and is now at $607 million. The cash value on that is over $286 million. And on this day in rock and roll history, Phil Collins left Genesis. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, two days ago, the Archbishop of Detroit, um, Alan Vigneron, released an outstanding pastoral letter dealing with the question of gender confusion. And he began it with a quote from Gaudium et Spes, uh, the Church's uh, Vatican II's uh, uh, constitution uh, dealing with the Church in the modern world. And he begins this way, The joy and hope the grief and anguish of the men of our time, especially of those who are poor or afflicted in any way, are the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. This certainly is something to keep in mind when we approach this question of gender dysphoria, the gender confusion. And uh, my guest has written an entire book dealing with the church's response to gender ideology. Uh, Attorney John Bursch is the author of Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. He's a senior, a senior counsel and vice president of appellate advocacy for Alliance Defending Freedom and has argued 12 U.S. Supreme Court cases in addition to dozens of state Supreme Court cases. He's also served as solicitor general for the state of Michigan from 2011 to 2013. You can follow his work at adflegal.org. John, good to have you back. Thanks. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on Saturday uh, as we do our uh, annual Familiaris Consortio Conference. So thank you. Yeah, delighted that we're going to do that and spend the entire conference just focused on this issue of gender ideology. Yeah, yeah. It's so important. And it, this, this, this topic uh, is still unfamiliar to a lot of people. Um, it's different than homosexuality because... Most people have acquaintances uh, who are homosexual or have sons or daughters who are, but not many people actually know those who are dealing with gender dysphoria or gender confusion, and so it's difficult to know quite how to respond to it. Um, Yeah, it can be, although that's changing quickly. Um, There are some states now where up to 10% of young people, adolescents and teenagers, identify yeah. as transgender. So yeah. if, if you haven't had this 
experience in your family or a, a close friend's family, um, just make sure that you're, you're getting educated about the issue because it's going to happen soon. Uh, it's becoming an unavoidable cultural conflict. Yeah, the New York Times had a long piece a few weeks ago, February 2nd, I think it was, uh, d- talking about a Grand Rapids uh, young woman who uh, began feeling as though she was not in her right body. She ends up uh, telling her parents. Uh, they go through all kinds of consultation. Uh, she ends up with a double mastectomy, hormones. She becomes a, a, She moves from biological uh, woman to uh, trans, uh, to a male. And she said that through the whole process, nobody ever asked her why she feels this disjunction between herself and her body. She's now undergoing uh, detransition. Uh, so I'm wondering how much of what we're seeing it, it, happening now with uh, young people especially claiming that they are um, gender dysphoric or gender confused, how much of that is, uh, well, a fad? <laughs> well, wh- whether it's a, a diagnosable mental health issue, which gender dysphoria is, or a fad, which we've undoubtedly seen that too. Abigail Schreier um, wrote a, a great book on, on that topic. That's right. Um, yeah. We know that it happens a lot. And what happens are that, that doctors at gender clinics and Planned Parenthood and other places quickly rush those kids as soon as they express any indication that they're, they're trans into puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgery, even for adolescents and teenagers, that set them up for a lifetime of heartache like that detransitioner. Actually, there was a whole series of detransitioners uh, discussed in the New York Times article. That's right, yeah. And what's, so, what's so sad about that? is that if we allow young people who are experiencing these feelings to just work it out without affirming their preferred pronouns or their dress or their using the opposite sex, sex of shower or clothes, any of those things, 80 to 95% of them will naturally desist and align their mind with their body. So these medical interventions are incredibly dangerous and occurring on a great many young people when it's not even necessary. At the same time, um, usually these feelings stem from other things, like that girl from Michigan suggested. 60% of kids who have gender dysphoria have suffered some kind of sexual abuse, yeah. and, and it may be other issues too. And by immediately rushing to the drugs and the surgery, we're not addressing any of those underlying problems that are actually causing the dysphoria. So yeah. it's a huge disservice to our young people. In fact, uh, the case of Grace uh, that leads that uh, New York Times piece actually says that she had they finally discovered that she had been sexually abused as a child but nobody had asked the question you know before the double mastectomy and cross-sex hormones i mean just tragic isn't that terribly sad yeah and and it's a it's a failure on the part of those doctors to respond the way that the catholic church calls us to respond to anyone who's struggling and that's with pastoral accompaniment yeah and pastoral accompaniment doesn't mean giving into what somebody wants. That's not loving. It's not willing what's best for that person. It means walking with them, getting to the true root of their problem and helping them solve it. And these clinics are doing the exact opposite, often for profit motives. People don't realize that one of the fastest growing revenue streams for Planned Parenthood are puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. Mm. Now, now the United States is kind of at the forefront of of this, uh, a number of European uh, countries 
have pulled back. They're much more cautious these days. Tell me about that. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, countries like the UK, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, um, all of them were very early adop- adopters of the this so-called gender-confirming care. Um, but those countries, unlike the United States, uh, in addition to doing it longer, have national health systems where someone's medical records are carefully tracked over the entire course of their life. In the United States, if someone has a gender transition, uh, you have no way to follow up with them after 10 or 15 years to see how it went. Mm. In Europe, they can do that. And what these countries did after pushing these things for many years is pull back and basically shut all those clinics down and said the best evidence that we have shows that these gender-affirming care surgeries, the medications and the the surgeries, um, are not doing any good at best, and at worst, they're causing more problems. For adults who transition, um, they determined through these systematic long-term studies that suicide rates actually increased that mental health problems actually increased. And then, of course, you've got all the side effects like loss of bone density and heart problems and brain problems mm. and loss of sexual function and loss of fertility. Uh, so the whole thing was just a total train wreck. And so they, they pulled it all back and said, we're not going to do this anymore until there's better evidence-based studies that show this works. And yet the American medical community, American medical community is jumping into it full force. Yeah. Sounds like a great opportunity for the church, however, to offer good news. It does, and that's why I love to see letters like th- this letter from our archbishop here in Detroit. Yeah. Um, it's one of many wonderful letters that bishops around the country have published that talk about the Catholic understanding of the, the human person, that our human ecology is that we are embodied souls. Our, our souls aren't something that's just trapped in a body that we can manipulate, but that our physical body says something about who we are. And that if you reject that, you reject a gift that God gave you, you reject your identity as a son or a daughter of God, and, and that makes it impossible to have real relationships with other people. You know, if that's our starting place, and then we talk about all these medical harms that come to kids who identify as transgender and then are encouraged to pursue that path, um, many more people can be helped. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any idea of what percentage of those who underwent uh these various cross-sex hormones and then puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and eventually um, mutilation of their bodies. Do we know how many, what percentage of those um, regret it uh, and move towards detransition? I I wish we had those numbers, but that's part of the problem with the American medical system, not having a a way to track someone over a 10 to 20 year period after they've had one of these transitions. Anecdotally, what we know are that there are thousands of detransitioners. The New York Times piece was just kind of the tip of the iceberg, but you can find whole, you know, blogs and um, other websites that collect the stories of these detransitioners. And they all express regret, and they all ask very similar questions. Why didn't anyone tell me that if I changed my mind, my body would be ruined? Mm. Why didn't anybody tell me that the best medical evidence showed that what I was about to do was a really bad idea? Why didn't anybody tell me that there were alternatives to medications and surgeries, things like counseling, therapy? Um, and, and so that really should be the question that haunts us as Catholics, um, at, at some point, it's inevitable, we're going to have someone like this who crosses our path, right. and we need to be ready to give them this information and answer those questions when, when they have them, because I, I can't imagine anything more haunting than someone coming back after the fact and saying, 
why didn't you tell me? Uh, yeah. Uh, just what what would what should a person do if all of a sudden uh, a son or daughter or nephew or niece discloses that they are uncomfortable in their body, that they think they perhaps may be a boy when in fact their body is that of a girl. Where do you start? What do you say to begin with? Well, even before that moment comes, hopefully you learn enough about the subject so that you can understand all the points that we've been talking about and more. I I encourage people to read the book, uh, to come to the conference on Saturday, and to explore all these great resources from the U.S. bishops, because we need to be well-armed with information and church teaching before that question comes. Yes. yes. Um, But when it it does come, you know, we we don't want to respond by dismissing the concern or, you know, acting out of anger or impatience or anything like that. Instead, we need to start a conversation and ask a lot of questions. So why do you feel that way? Why is it that you think that you might be a boy born in a girl's body? What does that mean to you? You know, what do you think it feels like to be a girl? Yeah. Um, and, and start exploring those things. And if it becomes part of a conversation, you may be able to get to the root of something which has nothing to do with gender identity, but perhaps an incident of abuse. And, and at the end of that conversation, to encourage them to seek some counseling with a Catholic counselor who will only give counseling in accordance with the church's teaching. John, thank you once again for being with me. I'm looking forward again to Saturday. Uh, we've got a great conference going on, male and female. He created them, responding to gender dysphoria in truth and charity. You can get more information at fgrhs.org slash events. Thanks, John. Thank you. See you Saturday. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. We Catholics have lots of ways to pray. Novenas, litanies, meditations, you name it, we've got it. With so many ways to pray, there's sure to be a way that fits your family. No matter how you pray, though, it's important to remember why we pray. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, prayer is, quote, a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God, close quote. When we sit down to pray as a family, we're not just checking off another chore on our to-do list. We're helping one another deepen our relationship with God and each other. If you're not sure where to begin, try this. Before meals and family gatherings, say, let's remember to take a moment to be in God's presence. And then take even 30 seconds to praise God, to thank Him, and to ask for His grace and blessing for your family. For more ideas about praying with your family, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, 
Visit CatholicCounselors.com. We were made for spiritual greatness. The divine image is in every person, however dimly seen in some. God gave man a spiritual and immortal soul. From the first moment in the womb, he or she is destined for eternal life with God. Man, by his reasoning, is capable of understanding the order the Creator has established. By our will, we are capable of aligning ourselves with our true good, which is where we find our perfection. Reason provides recognition of God's voice directing us toward good and avoiding evil. The law of God is made known by our conscience and is fulfilled by the love of God and love of neighbor. Because our first parents sinned, we suffer the wound of original sin. Thus, while we still desire good, we are inclined toward evil and subject to error. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Ave Maria Radio invites you to feast on the joy of fasting this Lenten season and all year long. Fast from complaining. Feast on appreciation. Fast from negatives. Feast on affirmatives. Fast from unrelenting pleasures. Feast on unceasing prayer. Fasting is a part of true Christian life. It liberates us from this world as we grow closer to Christ. No one should ever have to choose between feeding their family and keeping their heat on. Impossible questions like rent or diapers demand answers every day, likely in your very own neighborhood, but you can help. Hope Clinic partners with you to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. While others face impossible choices, your choice is an easy one. Partner with Hope Clinic today. Find out how at www.thehopeclinic.org. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Well, the Alabama Supreme Court recently found in an 8-to-1 decision that human embryos are covered under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. Now, this is what happened, as I understand it. Three families argued that an in vitro fertilization clinic should be held accountable for the accidental death of their preborn children, which were frozen embryos under the clinic's care. Now, uh, in vitro fertilization, and this is a shorthand way of putting it, is a fertility treatment in which doctors, uh, well, fuse sperm and eggs to create human embryos, and then they will implant them in a woman's womb without a sexual act. Embryos that are intended to be implanted at a future date are frozen. Undesired embryos are routinely destroyed or used for scientific research, which again kills these preborn children. Uh, this decision of the Alabama Supreme Court has really spawned much controversy, not, not only about the substance of the ruling, but about the rationale for it. Uh, because the uh, Supreme Court justice invoked biblical language and language from uh, Christian tradition, uh, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, uh, you have people like Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post saying that 
well, welcome to the theocracy. So I've asked uh, our friend Carter Sneed to join us. He is the author of an extraordinary book called The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He uh, serves, uh, well, he directs the Dean Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He's also a professor of law and concurrent professor of political science. Also, he's a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life and a fellow of the Hastings Center. Carter, good to have you back here. Thank you. Great to be with you again, as always. Let's talk, let's talk about this. Um, did, did I set it up properly? No, it was it was extraordinarily precise and 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 perfectly stated, it, it, and it was refreshing because what you read in the media is so confusing and tendentious about this. It, yet you could be forgiven. I have people that I've known for a long time saying, "Why did the Alabama Supreme Court just unilaterally declare in vitro uh, in vitro human embryonic human beings to be to be full persons under the law? Are they just imposing their you know theocratic views yeah. on?" Yeah. On the album, and you very precisely described exactly the procedural context in which this came up. They were interpreting a statute, uh, and the, they were trying to understand what, whether or not a particular statute uh, allowed recovery in, in the civil suit for people for the loss of their child, whether or not the, the, the term minor child referred to unborn children who were outside of the body, and in, in, in this case in freezers. Um, and they were bound by a Supreme Court precedent that said, uh, the, uh, the, the wrongful death of a minor act includes, uh, unborn children at any gestational stage of development and didn't make any exception for whether we're talking about in utero babies or, or ex utero human beings in freezers. And so it was a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the statute. They weren't trying to impose their will. Now there was a concurring opinion that actually wasn't even the majority, majority opinion, a concurring opinion, which went into some sort of political theory and, and talked about different religious sources of authority. Uh, but that wasn't the central, you know, analytic yeah. mechanism the court used to come to their judgment. They just said, look, this is what the statute means. Well, it means all unborn human beings at any stage, and, and it would be anomalous to exclude unborn children who were uh, in cryopreservation in, uh, in IVF clinics. Yeah. Yeah. And as you also said, it was actually IVF parents who brought the lawsuit. It right. wasn't uh, like pro-life, you know, nonprofits bringing the lawsuit to try to stop IVF in Alabama. Um, so, so it's quite a, it's, 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 yeah, it was, it was a very well described, um, uh, overview that you gave. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, and as you said, also, it's kind of uh, created a, a firestorm of controversy. But, but if, again, if you take a look at it, um, there's no necessary reason why it would have to stop all IVF. Uh, in in Alabama, in the state of Louisiana, for example, they've declared by statute uh, unborn children outside the body to be juridical persons, and they still do IVF. They just do it in a way that uh, is mindful of the fact that, that that they're working with juridical persons and they're working with in vitro embryos. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I, this concurring opinion by the Chief Justice uh, cites Genesis, uh, Saint Augustine, Thomas Aquinas. John Calvin, how those cite, how significant are those citations to the well, I mean, ruling I think, itself? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I, I, they're not essential to the ruling itself. I mean, I'm not. I'm, that's not to, to say that they're not interesting or worth thinking about. But uh, but this is this is a state. This is a case involving statutory interpretation. Yeah. Uh, your listeners may not know it, but at common law, before there were statutes on the issue, people couldn't even recover in tort suits for the loss of life of their loved ones or people on whom they depended. 
And so, so states passed laws called wrongful death acts, which were statutes that created civil rights of action so that people whose loved, loved ones or, or, or other people that were important to them were, were uh, wrongfully killed, tortiously, negligently, or intentionally, that they could sue and, and recover. It's actually, it's, it, you may remember O.J. Simpson was acquitted of, uh, of homicide uh, back in the 90s, uh, but then on the exact same set of facts, he was found liable for causing the wrongful death of those two individuals right. and was liable for millions of dollars. And um, and that lawsuit wouldn't have been possible uh, in California if there weren't a wrongful death act that would allow the, the, the survivors to sue uh, uh, Mr. Simpson under the statute. Yeah. Um, there was also here, I'm looking for my notes, there was also a constitutional amendment adopted by uh, the citizens of Alabama in 2018 that affirmed the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. And uh, then there was uh, another act in 2019. Do you know the history on those? Yeah, I think what you have in those cases are the people of Alabama acting through their legislature, uh, moving to try to encode in the law respect for the unborn child. And you, both of those that, uh, legislative moves were made before the Dobbs case, um, before they could, it could have any effect on on abortion. Right. Um, and uh, but it could have effect in contexts other than abortion. And this is something else that's uh, another another theme in the public discourse that I think is misleading. That somehow this this case is follows from the Dobbs case. Well, that that's completely the Dobbs case is irrelevant to this case. The Dobbs case only concerns abortion and returns. The legis- to the to the political process is the freedom and power to govern ourselves on the question of abortion, yeah. whereas in vitro embryos have been subject to legal protections in different jurisdictions for for decades yeah. and yeah. before and after uh, Dobbs. And so, um, but no, I, I think Alabama is a state where it, where it seems that the state legislature has moved in various years to try to memorialize in the law that the citizens view that unborn children are. Are valuable and, and should be protected, and are part of the human family, and they're part. They're inside the the boundaries of the moral and legal community, and so that those authorities also, I think, influence some of the justices in thinking about how they should interpret the language from the Wrongful Death Act. Yeah. Uh, so what we're dealing with here is not nothing that had to do with Dobbs. Uh, this is simply a, an Alabama statute that the Supreme Court uh, interpreted uh, eight to one that human embryos are covered under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. That's the key thing, the wrongful death of a minor act. That's the key thing. And yep. the other key thing is is that this case was brought by and won by <laughs> right. IVF parents. Okay? That's right. So yeah. this is I mean, the, the, the idea and, this, and the, the notion that this, this case marks the death. I mean, there's no sense at all. Wouldn't every parent who, I mean, who, who, who follows that pathway in IVF want their embryos to be protected by the by the by the facilities where they're stored by the way and i don't know if this was what the facility called it i think it probably was because in the opinion in quotation marks the court refers to the place where the embryos were stored as the quote frozen nursery huh. so my 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 sense is from from context it sure seems like and i and I, i've not seen any confirmation of this but in context it seems like that's what the facility called the the, the the section that they left unsecured where the uh, where the frozen embryos were stored where the embryonic human beings uh, were kept in cryo storage and so and everybody everybody who's involved knows that when these embryos are conceived 
um, the hope for these embryos is that they become tra- that they get transferred to the woman's womb, as you said, and 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 implant and, and, and grow and gestate and ultimately are born and 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 you know they're, they're children to be with the president's council on bioethics, where I used to work as general counsel right. on cast. Before we we taught we wrote a, wrote a whole report on this in 2004. It's called reproduction and responsibility. And one of the things that has been striking about the discourse here is it's almost as if people have entirely forgotten the debates over embryonic uh, embryonic moral status that we had in the in you know from 1998 until 2016. We were having these conversations in the context of cloning and embryo research, and IVF was part of it because the embryos that were used for stem cell research were, were donated from IVF clinics. And we had debates about the moral status of the embryo and why it is the case that every member of the human family from conception of natural death is entitled to, to moral concern and the protection of the law. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are or how big you are, or how old you are, how dependent you are. Everybody counts and everybody matters and should be protected and cared for. And it's so strange. And there's even a federal law that's been in place since 1995 that forbids the federal funding of research that, that destroys or harms in vitro embryos. So it's not a new thing that we're talking about the importance of in vitro embryos or embryonic human beings right. that, uh, who are stored in freezers. We, we had this debate, and, and it's just uh, it's as if the idea that, it, that people are talking about how shocking and surprising this is, it's almost as if those debates never happened. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, people do seem to have forgotten the the whole debate over embryonic stem cell research, and uh, the and the status uh, of um, of uh, in vitro uh, children conceived through in vitro fertilization and then frozen um, for use. Where, when the Catholic Church looks at this. Now we'll move away from U.S. law here in Alabama law. When the Catholic Church looks at the the, the in vitro child who's born, mm-hmm. um, there's no reluctance to affirm the full personhood of that child who was conceived through in vitro fertilization, even though the Church uh, uh, doesn't like the method of conception and gestation. Right, just in the same way that the church welcomes and loves and baptizes children born out of wedlock. All children are valuable and to be loved and cared for in the eyes of God, and and, um, that's certainly true of babies conceived by IVF. Yeah. Carter Holder's there. We've got to take a break. Music's coming up on us, and we're going to continue. My guest... This is Carter Sneed, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Today's programming on 990 WTEO is brought to you in part by Gift from Our Day Sponsor. The annual Rose Mass for Catholic Healthcare Workers celebrated by Bishop Boyer will be at 4.30 p.m. Saturday, March 9th at St. Thomas in Ann Arbor, followed by a reception in the Parish Hall. Karen Bussey, Director of the Mother Teresa House, will speak on redemptive suffering. Suggested free will donation is $20. RSVP at cmalansing at gmail.com. That's cmalansing at gmail.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. 
Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. This week on Christ is the Answer, it's the season of Lent, and Father John wants to help us prepare for Easter. Let's start out with a question. What are you doing to prepare for Lent? The Church has so many faithful ways for us to traverse this season of fasting so that we can get the most out of prayer and penance. Join us this week as Father John wants to help us get the most out of Lent, as well as how Jesus wants us to pray. Tune in for Christ is the Answer, Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jangle. St. Ignatius of Loyola offers great hope to those who are experiencing spiritual desolation in the seventh rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. When one is experiencing spiritual desolation, along with its various agitations and temptations, St. Ignatius teaches, since he can resist with the divine help which always remains with him, though he does not clearly feel it, for the Lord has taken away from him his great fervor, abundant love, and intense grace leaving him, however, sufficient grace for eternal salvation. The divine help always remains in the darkness of spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, Since God always provides sufficient grace to withstand the trial of spiritual desolation, persons immersed in such desolation and seeking to resist can know with certitude that they can resist. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. The question of gender identity is divisive, controversial, and often painful. How should parents respond to sons and daughters desiring to change their gender? Will the church remain free to teach that we are created male and female? What do the sciences say? We'll find out on March 2nd when Father Gabriel Richard High and Ave Maria Radio host our annual Familiaris Consortio Conference, Responding to Gender Dysphoria in Truth and Charity. Attorney John Bursch takes on gender ideology. Professor of endocrinology, Dr. Paul Cruz, covers the sciences. Father Sean Kilcauley speaks as a pastor. And you will bring plenty of questions for our panel. Be there Saturday morning, March 2nd, from 8.15 until noon at Father Gable Richard High in Ann Arbor. The event is free, includes a light breakfast, so register at AveMariaRadio.net or FGRHS.org. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Carter Sneed, author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Uh, The occasion for our conversation today is the controversy surrounding the Alabama Supreme Court decision that uh, found by 8 to 1 that human embryos are covered under the state's wrongful death of a minor act. And uh, there are a few things, a few other emphases I wanted to go through with you on this, Carter. This whole idea that Ruth Marcus in the Washington Post says, welcome to the theocracy. Now, there's a whole shelf 
full of books in my library on people claiming that Christian influence in public affairs uh, is leading us down the road to a theocracy. Uh, Kevin Phillips wrote a book back at least in 2006 called American Theocracy. You had Damon Linker, who used to work with Father Richard John Newhouse, write a book called The Theocons, Secular America Under Siege. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times wrote Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. And this this horn gets blown every few years, it seems to me, that we're on the verge of a theocracy. Why? I... You worked with the president, President Bush's Council on Bioethics. You worked with, you know, some deeply committed Catholics, uh, evangelicals, other Protestants. You worked with uh, Jews and uh, those who had no uh, religious faith. Did you know anybody there that wanted to see a theocracy? It's 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 it is amazing how it just sort of comes back around. For, for, so on the cynical explanation probably is that it's it's a very politically advantageous charge to make. Uh, we're in a political season right now during, you know, both parties are having their yep. primaries for the presidency. Uh, and, and, you know, politics is polarized like never before, at least in my memory. Right. Um, and, uh, and people are divided bitterly culturally and people, um, and retreat into their own little discourse communities which are, you know, more or less hermetically sealed, uh, where they talk only to people they agree with. And, yeah, it's an echo like, I mean, chamber. I don't want to embarrass my mom. I love my mom. She's a wonderful woman. But my mom just, like, sits around and watches MSNBC all the time. <laughs> and she'll call me up, and she's like, did you know this or, ha- this or that's happening? I said, Mom, you need to diversify your, your, your media intake a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, now, she does love EWTN, so she probably gets some balance in that respect. But, 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 but the point is, is that... Uh, is that there are a lot of people who have no idea what their neighbors believe about things, and they assume the worst. They have a caricature in their mind of what you know of, of what people believe, and um, and it's and it it, uh, it creates a very toxic social environment. I mean, I have wonderful friends um, from college and law school who, since we graduated, you know, work in their own communities and they live in parts of the country where they are surrounded by people who agree with them and never encounter people they disagree with and and these are very secular environments and the thing they're most worried about are people like you and me imposing our religious values (laughs) on them and and ruining their lives and preventing them from doing the things they want to do um you know they've never been to a catholic worker house i guess to see how (laughs) the catholic church serves the homeless or or how how you know we invented the hospital for example i mean but but it, I mean, it, it's people have a very one-dimensional and, and caricatured view of what what Catholics, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and other religious people believe, and uh, and this is a kind of useful useful boogeyman. On the, on the other hand, um, you know, uh, I think it also reflects a kind of deep ignorance about the the normative nature of positions. I mean, Ruth Marcus has very strong views. I don't think that they're neutral views. I think she has very strong views that are rooted in particular presumptions about what humans are and yep. what human flourishing is and what the ends of human life are. And, uh, and they have to do with freedom and autonomy and expression and so on. And, 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 um, uh, you know, that's a worldview. And, and the fact that, 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 you know, in our public square, people are trying to advance that worldview through politics doesn't make it any less, 
uh, normative than, than you and me saying that we should love our neighbor the way we love ourselves and serve the poor and have a preferential option for the weak and vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that just surprises me. Everyone has an anthropology. Everyone has an idea uh, of what people are for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and yet, they don't seem to understand that this discussion of the law is really about protecting and flourishing persons. And so what are these persons that we're trying to protect and lead to flourishing? I, so you mentioned Ruth Marcus. I don't know if she th- realizes that she has an anthropology, that she has an entire worldview. I don't know if she's conscious of those assumptions, because that's the way it is for most people, I think. It, there's certain assumptions they make about what people are for. Yeah, well, Walker, you almost quoted Walker Percy perfectly a moment ago. Walker Percy said, you know, everyone has an anthropology. Anyone who says they don't have an anthropology is either concealing it from you or hasn't thought to to consider what their presuppositions are. Um, And and, and again, the fact that ours correspond to our religious tradition, I mean, if you think about it, homicide laws correspond to our religious tradition. Yeah, yeah. The law, welfare laws correspond to our religious tradition. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're de facto illegitimate because we believe that we should care for our neighbor because we believe our neighbor's made in the image and likeness of God versus care for your neighbor because you have some kind of, you know, culturally inherited set of values that are basically Christian values that have subtracted Christ from them. I mean, so, it, and you see this in the in the debate in, over Europe, in Europe over the inclusion of references to Christianity in, 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 the, in the European Union and their, and their constitutions and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a puzzling thing, and it's unfortunate. And, again, people understanding the Catholic Church's position on IVF, which isn't simply about not killing in, embryonic human beings, but also about thinking about how babies come into the world and how children should be begotten and not made and supervene over the loving act of, under ideal circumstances, spouses in the conjugal union, that that actually has, that that is the the optimal way for a child to come to be. And to if you you adopt a a kind of posture of rational mastery towards the manufacture of human life in the laboratory made to order, I mean, the way IVF is practiced, this is another thing that's not being talked about. The most common use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis in America is for sex selection. People, people choosing little boys over little girls. Yeah. They, uh, people excluding embryos on the grounds or people choosing embryos because of all sorts of non-medical traits. Businesses growing up trying to sell, you know, genetic testing for IQ. Right. Or, 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 or people put, taking out ads in, um, in college newspapers for, for female students who have high, you know, SAT scores and good health histories to, you know, pay them $10,000 or even more for their, for their eggs. This is a consumer it's, it's, it's issue now. Different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow. And the families who are desperate to have children um, are incredibly vulnerable, and, and they and they you know they they and they're easily easily um, taken advantage of by 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 people in this particular industry. And and um, you know I say that as a a person uh, who formed his family, all my babies, we adopted all of our babies, mm. you know? Yes. And um, and my wife is writing a book right now about uh, infertility and Catholicism. So this is not something that 
Catholics are sort of smugly indifferent to. I mean, this is something that, that we think about a lot, and we have a kind of answer for the, the cross of infertility and how to think about it in the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you've never seen our politics as polarized as we see it today. Uh, this, this makes it difficult, of course, to have the kind of communication uh, with those with whom we disagree. Do you see any bright spots on the horizon? Yeah, I think, I think it has to happen in individual instances. I think the way we, I don't, I don't see any grand solution to the problem of polarization, but I think that insofar as we in our own lives can internalize the proposition that we love our neighbors the way we love ourselves, and that's unconditional love, and we want to express that, I think that when we become friends with people and we, and we show them that we care about them no matter what, then we can open the possibility of genuine uh, exchange of ideas, and, and people will listen to one another. You're, you're not going to listen to somebody if you think that they think you're, you're a terrible person. Right. And, uh, if, if, but if you know somebody that cares about you, and they have a completely different perspective, you're going to think about it, and they're going to think about it, and you're going to... And, and so that's... That, I think that friendship is the only antidote to this kind of polarization, which is not, of course, a political program, but a personal program that we should pursue in our own lives. Yeah, and it's something we can do. In our own lives. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, this question of uh, that you address in, in your book, what it means to be human, is seems to me to be incredibly important. And is that being asked in a serious way in academia? Um, you know, in in the world of uh, our in our medical establishment. Is that a question? What, is it, what does it mean to be human? Is, is that a question that actually, is there a healthy conversation going on somewhere about this? Well, again, that, as, you, as you generously point out, that was what I was trying to argue in the book. I was yeah. trying to make the case in the book, what it means to be human, that when we're having these debates over bioethical questions that arise in the public square and that we govern ourselves on, uh, we have to ask the fundamental question, before we know what law to to vote on or what policy to adopt, we have to ask the question: of, Is this is this good for human flourishing? And the only way the you know the answer to whether or not a particular measure is good for human flourishing is if you know what a human being is, yeah. and if you know what human beings are for. And uh, and we have to have those conversations. And whether it's happening or not, I hope it's happening. I mean, I'm trying to to make the case for, for it uh, in the public square, and certainly at places like Notre Dame, it's happening. Um, but uh, but I, I, I do think we have some work to do, um, and, and and I think we uh, and I think people are afraid of discussing deeply held views, normative views. They're worried that they're they don't want to impose their values on others or have their others' values imposed on them. But I think once we realize that there's no avoiding that question, and you cannot you cannot pursue laws or policies that are aimed at human flourishing without having the conversation of what is human flourishing. And, and that requires you to go back even further and say, well, what are human beings and what are they for and what yeah. do we owe to each other? Yeah, I, I, it, I mean, we're reaching a point where we're having more and more discussion about death and dying and uh, mm -hmm. medical assistance in death and uh, uh, so-called right to die. Um, we have here assisted reproduction that we just saw with in Alabama and this in vitro fertilization 
law. Uh, of course, we've talked abortion has been the place where this has been discussed most commonly. But uh, it seems to me we're reaching a critical point because we are becoming increased. We're getting better and better at the technology here. Um, and it, it seems to me that we're far ahead in the technology than we are in the, I don't know, uh, anthropology or the philosophy. I think you're right about that. And, and something that um, folks may have missed uh, last month or in, in January, there was the first, uh, it was reported the first successful cloning of a human primate to term. Yeah. So we'd never cloned a human primate before that was born and lived outside the womb. And now we've crossed that line. Uh, and that is something that is going to reopen an awful lot of questions. And as you say, these things are going to rush ahead unless we talk about this and what we, what's, you know, and draw some lines and figure out what we think about what should and shouldn't be done with these technologies. People are going to push ahead. They're going to rush ahead. They're going to do these things. And it's going to be a matter of trying to put, uh, put the horse back in the in the barn yeah yeah carter again thanks for being with me today and uh greatly appreciate your work and i hope we can talk again soon great thanks al you take care carter sneed is the author of what it means to be human the case for the body in public bioethics it's an outstanding book and um it comes it comes back to the, the thing that is so important to us uh, as Christians, as Catholics in particular, because we have a well-developed understanding of the human person. But our culture it doesn't seem to be wanting to engage this question about human dignity. Uh, they seem more interested in using technology to get results on human beings, in human beings without asking, what are human beings and what are they for? At Glass Doctor, our trained specialists are experts at fixing foggy and cracked glass, leaving any residential window looking like new without replacing the entire window. Bring back the view of any window with Glass Doctor. Visit glassdoctor.com to request a free estimate on repairing your foggy or cracked windows. Let Glass Doctor bring back your view. Call the Glass Doctor, we'll fix your pain. Oh, yeah. Blessed Carlo Acutis is quoted as saying, Continuously ask your guardian angel for help. Your guardian angel has to become your best friend. We all have traveling companions, our guardian angels walking with us through life. How often are you communicating with your angel? Jesus said, I send you an angel before you to protect you, to accompany you along the path so that you do not make mistakes. According to the tradition of the Catholic Church, each of us has a guardian angel who protects us and helps make us aware of things around us. In his angels in 2021, Pope Francis noted that oftentimes we have that feeling that I should do this or this is not right or be careful. That's the voice of our guardian angel. We don't walk alone. Not listening to our guardian angel's advice, however, the Pope says, is like telling him to go away. It's dangerous to chase away our traveling companion. This has been a Christ Center communication message. I'm Vanessa Denhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live streamed or broadcast mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. 
We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. You can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. That again is AveMariaRadio.net. Carter's book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Available in the online bookstore. Coming up next hour, we've got some great conversation. Uh, The funeral for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny going to be held Friday, uh, and the question is being asked whether his death is going to galvanize Russia's democratic opposition. And then we're going to be joined by Jonathan Feldstein, who was there in southern Israel for the October 7th attack. 